everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 24 of Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today we're going to talk about a white oak shortage that is not only looming, it is clear and present danger today. I'm going to throw out some call for feedback on solar kilns because I wasn't able to talk about it last month or last month, last episode. I want to talk a little bit more about drying your own logs. I'm going to talk about felling trees at a certain time of year, um, some grading marks, and a discussion about Spanish cedar. Lots of questions came in over the last week, so I'm really looking forward to diving into it. But first things first, I do want to say thank you to uh, the new sponsors of the show who went over to patreon.com slash lumber update and threw me a couple of bucks just to say thanks for doing the show and I want to support you. So special thanks to Judith, Robert, and Christopher who all became $5 or greater patrons this month. Thank you so much guys. And again, if you are interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and throw me a dollar, throw me $10, throw me $100 if you really feel like generous. No, don't do that. Then I'll feel guilty. So um, yes, thank you. Thank you to all the patrons. Thank you for everybody for keeping the show going over there. Um, it's very, very much appreciated. So last episode, I talked about drying of lumber. And on the actual website, lumberupdate.com, where all of these episodes are posted, I did throw a paragraph in there saying I didn't get to talk about solar kilns. And that was actually on purpose. But it occurs to me, I didn't say that in the audio recording. So like most people listen to podcasts and they never go to the website. So I've had some questions come up um, in the interviewing weeks about what about solar kilns? And I wanted to throw out a call for input on this. I did not talk about solar kilns because I have zero experience with them. I have dealt with light bulb kilns, like in drying Windsor parts where you just build a box, put a light bulb in there and throw your steam bent uh, uh, projects in there, steam bent parts, or maybe your spindles in in a light bulb box. Uh, I've heard about solar kilns. I've seen a lot of articles about constructing solar kilns, but I don't know anybody who's used one. In the commercial sector, obviously we're not using them because they're much smaller scale. And from my perspective, and, and this this is an uninformed perspective, they're not nearly as controllable as you know the steam kilns and dehumidification kilns that we use in the commercial sector. I'm sure that's probably not right. I'm sure that someone has built a solar kiln and felt a, found a really good way to do a controlled drying on this. So I'm throwing it out to you guys. This is another way to dry your lumber. And for the kind of DIY uh, Sawyer slash lumber creator, <laughs> um, the solar kiln is probably a viable option. I just know nothing about it. So please, if you have any experience, any knowledge of solar kilns, please write into the show. Go to lumberupdate.com. There's a whole contact form you can fill out there, or you can record a voice memo and email it to me at lumberupdate at gmail.com, or just send me an email at lumberupdate at gmail.com. I really would love to hear from people who have some knowledge, uh, feedback, experience, I'd love experience on using a solar kiln because that's it's got to be a viable option and we just didn't talk about it because I don't know anything about it so let's crowdsource this one um, next, I talked a little bit about how the Commerce Department is going to be investigating uh, moldings and millwork, Chinese molding and millwork, as for tariffs and anti-dumping. Well, actually, they have done that, and it looks like that is going to happen. There is probably going to be a tariff happening there. 
But Alex wrote in who had some um, more informed feedback on anti-dumping. I don't think I was particularly clear on what that is. So uh, Alex, I think Alex is an economist. Regardless, he seems to know what he's talking about. So he says, I just listened to your talk about anti-dumping tariffs. And as a part-time, part-time econ nerd, okay, I wanted to distinguish dumping from good old-fashioned competition. This is a really key point. I'm so glad you wrote in, Alex. Dumping is what happens when someone uses a government subsidy or some kind of excess capital to sell at a loss to force other firms out of a market. The dumper can then raise prices while retaining the extra market share and rely upon the capital requirements and threat of further dumping to keep the old competition and new competitors out of business. It's an anti-competitive practice that favors whomever is willing to subsidize the most, and it works best in industries with large capital investments. Now, this is different than someone who just has cheaper labor or better processes or cheaper access to raw materials that offer a competitive advantage and beat someone on price. This is part of the comparative advantage that makes things cheaper for consumers in the long run and increases the total wealth of both countries in the end. The distinction is easy to make theoretically, but of course, every country publicly disputes who is dumping and how and why. So being skeptical of tariffs and dumping accusations is not a bad idea. Hope this helps, Alex. Alex, I'm really glad you brought that up because I I didn't talk about that. And it's one of the reasons we're always talking about anti-dumping in reference to China, because there is a fair amount of government subsidy. But at the same time, the Chinese government will often say, we're not subsidizing them. So yeah, it can be really difficult to to say what what is anti-dumping and what is just competitive practices. The whole offshore thing happened because of cheaper labor. That was a competitive advantage. Now it's got its own bugaboos that go with it, but that's not anti-dumping. Once somebody comes in and starts subsidizing in order for the, the in this case, the molding and millwork, millwork manufacturer to produce it at a significantly lower price because they're getting money from somewhere else, that's anti-dumping. And that's what um, that's what we're talking about with this molding and millwork thing. So thanks again, Alex. I always love it when um, when people who have an expert in these little niches throw in their uh, their two cents. No, on a totally different kind of lighthearted front, Jay wrote in and brought to my attention an article that the New York City Parks Department are going to be using a new tree font that was designed, um, oh shoot, designed by uh, artist Katie Holden. She developed a new font that is based on trees, using specific species of trees to represent a letter. So for instance, the um, Virginia or the the willow um, and and a picture of the silhouette of a willow is a W. Uh, Hawthorne and a silhouette of a Hawthorne is H and maple, etc. And what they're going to be doing, what they, meaning New York City Park Department, is talking about putting messages around New York City by planting these different trees and allowing you to essentially decode it. It's just kind of a fun little thing. And for a tree nerd like myself who can't walk through a park without, you know, looking at all the trees, identifying them or trying to figure out what the trees are, it would be really cool to be able to say, ooh, now let's spell it out. Let's grab our um, our little orphan Annie decoder rings and <laughs> figure out exactly what the message the uh, New York City Parks Department is saying. So I'll link to this article because it has the the whole alphabet here and the various silhouettes of the trees and, and uh, the letters that they stand for. Just kind of a cool idea. And uh, Jay, thanks for, for writing in and sharing that. That's, uh, that's pretty neat. 
Now, I wanted to talk about this white oak shortage. Um, at the yard where I work, we have essentially put a hold on all white oak orders. Um, we're, we're, we're taking them, but with the caveat that there could be a significant lead time. We've got to do a fair amount of reviewing. Normally, white oak is one of our staple species. We usually have you know, I don't know, 80 to 150,000 board feet of it on the yard at any given time. We, I don't know the actual inventory now, there's still probably maybe 20, 25,000 board feet, but it's really been picked over as orders have come in and certain specs have been met. And what you're left with is kind of the dregs. You know, I often talk about how as the individual hobbyist goes in and picks out the best boards from a pack, what's left of that pack is slightly devalued because, you know, the grade, is, is a percentage game. There are some boards that don't quite meet the grade. There are some boards that way exceed the grade. And the more of those cream of the crop boards are taken off, the more you're left with the boards that are kind of marginal on grade. And, you know, once you get these huge uh, influx of orders for white oak and you start picking over these packs, you end up with a fair amount of material left over that doesn't meet anyone's needs because the um, grade demands or the specific width or length specs are such that now we've got 25,000 board feet that can be difficult to sell. Now, our job is to try to find a market where that particular grade, that particular size can be met. You know, narrower stuff goes well into the flooring company. Lower grade stuff goes well to flooring companies because they they can cut them into smaller parts and they only need one face. A lot of times cabinet shops can be a good source for narrow lumber, for rail and style type stuff. But your typical molding and millwork guys who need 19 foot long, you know, boards that are completely free of any defect or any knot, that's getting a little difficult. And the reason for this and why I want to talk about this is it's not just right now it's it's white oak. White oak is the major problem. A lot of people are specking it. It's now become very much an in vogue species and lighter colored woods have, have long been on the rise as far as design trends go. Architects, interior designers are specking lighter colored woods and it's been a lot of lighter color exotics. Well, as people are trying to be more green, trying to think more about carbon footprints and things, they're moving more into domestic side of things and we're looking at the lighter species domestically well maple will always be popular but you you know maple is kind of vanilla if you actually want that wood look but you want a wider look white oak is a very good um, solution a good species solution for that so there's a lot more people specking it a lot more people calling for it Plus, there has just been a boom in construction. You know, as we came out of the recession, construction started to turn around big time. Well, during that recession, a great many sawmills went belly up. The profit margins of the lumber industry are so thin that it doesn't take much of a blip for a lot of these family-run sawmills, in many instances, multi-generational, 100-year-old businesses that have had to just go away. They went out of business because they just they couldn't sustain things anymore. So now that the market has started to turn around, the construction trade is back on the rise, the demand is up, but the number of people producing white oak is down dramatically. There's just not as many companies in the business anymore. And as more and more demand comes around, you know, there's there's the supply is why well, I can't necessarily say the supply isn't there. The lead time to develop lumber for sale is quite long. You know, you cut down the tree, you can't just sell it right away. It's got to be sawn. It's got to be dried. Uh, oak in particular needs to be take take its time when drying properly. The specs are changing dramatically. So what we're running into is while, um, you know, the big guys like Frank Miller have a lot of white oak 
most of it is not ready. Most of it still needs to be dried. So while we may see a, a, a quite a, a slight easing of this, you know, crisis, if you will, within a couple of months when things come available again, once that stock is out, we could be in a major, major shortage for a year after that because it takes that long to develop this stuff. And obviously, oak being a slow growing hardwood, it's not like you, you know, you just wait a couple of years and you've got a whole new stand that you can you can cut down. White oak and most domestic species are all very sustainably harvested, but you know, there's less and less forest land for these trees to be grown in. You know, there's population density being what it is. So white oak, we're seeing it now, but this is a growing danger in a lot of our domestic species. We saw poplar go through this a couple of years ago where Generally, we had around 11 billion board feet of near inventory poplar in North America. That near inventory dropped to 5 billion board feet. Now, it still sounds like a lot of lumber, but when the market demand you know, was really, really low and all these sawmills went out of business, it dropped to 5 billion board feet. And it was like, okay, that's not a big deal. But the normal market demand was like 9 billion board feet um, per annum. Well, that spiked back up again and we're seeing poplar, uh, you know, running out and what's happening is the price is going up on something as you know a commodity product like poplar well the same thing now is happening with white oak white oak now is selling higher than most other domestic species and is comparable to a lot of exotic species because of supply and demand but here's the other issue that i really want to talk about because we're going to see this with a lot of domestic lumber domestic lumber prices had not climbed any significant percentage since the 1950s. They pretty much stayed flat. And, you know, when you go into your local retailer, you may see, you may look at it and go, man, that doesn't seem like it stayed flat. That seems expensive. But really think back, like if you've been buying lumber from a retailer for 10 years, what have you been paying for cherry? Can you remember what you paid for it 10 years ago? I'd be willing to bet it's not significantly cheaper than what it is now. For the commodity products like oak, red oak, white oak, poplar, maple, those have stayed within 10 cents for more than 50 years now. And it's really crazy. When I start talking to some of my sawmill contacts, when I talk to some of my colleagues who've been in this business for 40 years and they can remember, you know, like when you recall, oh, I remember when gas used to cost less than a dollar, you know, you talk to these guys and they're like, yeah, we've been selling white oak at basically the same price since I started in this business 45 years ago. And for a company like mine that's got several hundred years of experience, we can actually look back through the records and see that these domestic lumber prices have been very much the same since the 1950s, really since after World War II. There has not been any dramatic change in price. Certainly you may see a little bit going up, but then there's also this inflationary thing going on. and the prices of the domestic lumber is staying pretty much the same. And I think you may run into this a lot with a lot of raw materials. You know, manufacturers are constantly trying to cut costs and they're driving the raw material prices down and down and down. And and the price that we, the consumer, see is added on and all the transformation and all the labor that happens from the raw material to the store shelf, to the finished product. So commodity raw material stuff continues to stay flat and the inflation that we see on the dollar is being more reflected in the additional transformation downstream. So it's really 
no wonder that so many sawmills have just gone belly up because their pricing has not changed, but their cost of, of being in business has gone up dramatically. The cost of services that they require for all the stuff you know to run their business has gone up dramatically, but their margins have continued to stay the same. And shortages on lumber just because of greater demand, greater construction, greater population density has really caused a recipe for disaster. So White Oak right now is in a crisis situation with very, very low availability. And the price is starting to spike in order to accommodate that. And, you know, I buy lumber like everybody. I hate to see the price go up, but at the same time, I almost welcome this. We need to see a bit of a correction in the domestic lumber market, or it's going to continue to fly off the shelves, which is going to lead to greater shortages. You know, when you don't have enough um, inventory to meet the demand, you got to raise your prices. Um, So... You know, next time you go to the lumber yard and you're like, man, this sucks that this costs so much. I feel for you. I do. I honestly do. But you also got to think about the long term future of the lumber industry. You got to think about the long term availability. More importantly, think about this from an environmental and green perspective. If we don't make this stuff more valuable, no one's going to take care of these forests. No one's going to manage that poplar forest, that white oak forest, because they're going to lose their shirt with all the, the labor, all the care required to grow a good lumber producing white oak forest, red oak forest, maple forest. And when they see you know, a margin of a penny on the dollar, people aren't going to do it anymore. And suddenly there's going to be very low availability. And not only will the price be so sky high, you just won't be able to get it. No matter how much money you throw at it, you won't be able to get the lumber. And that is a very clear and present danger. Something we could see, you know, not just in our lifetimes, but within the next decade. So think about that, folks. You know, I realize I work for the lumber industry. And of course, I want, you know, the the, the profit margins to go up. But I'm also a woodworker. I also buy lumber and I'm very concerned when you see the prices staying flat like this. And when you look behind the curtain and you see companies with 180 years in business just folding up one day, you know, legacies shutting down left and right. It is shocking the number of lumber companies that have gone under. So again, there's my, um, heavily, heavily biased um, soapbox speech there, but it is just something to think about when, when you buy your lumber. And, you know, we're all prone to complain about the cost of what that, you know, that cherry, that walnut or whatever cost you, but uh, it would be a very good reason for that. <laughs> Pausing for dramatic effect. Okay, moving on to emails. Matthew wrote in, he said, I have um, my first three logs to mill, two elm logs and a log that I'm still trying to identify. It might be cherry or something with a similar bark, but I'll be using my own version of an Alaskan mill and I'll be air drying the lumber as slabs and as boards. I really only have two drying options available. I can either leave it outside or put it in my garage attic. What would you recommend? I'm in Utah, so I get all three seasons, but in general, it's a desert climate. Would a solar kiln be an option? So again, please, if anybody's got experience with a solar kiln, write in because I'd love to be able to, to talk to him. Yes, Matthew, a solar kiln may be an option with a big old butt there because I that's all I can say. I'm sure it could be an option. But here's the thing. Dry, you know, living in a desert climate is going to help. It's going to certainly help accelerate the drying. So you're going to want to make sure that you are 
very well sealing the ends there to kind of slow down some of the drop of moisture off the ends of the boards. You want to make sure that you are stickering those boards and providing adequate airflow. Now, if you were to stick them in your attic, it's certainly going to get warmer up there and that could accelerate the drying. But without proper airflow, you're going to have a major problem. You're going to turn that lumber into kindling, essentially. It's going to crack apart on you unless you can get and even out the drying. And without proper airflow, that excess heat and that dry air in Utah is going to just suck the moisture out of the outside of that pack, whatever that stack of lumber you have, and maybe even just the outside of each individual board. But without good airflow through the pack, you know, you've got those stickers in place to allow air to flow through the pack of lumber. Without forcing air through there, you're going to have unevenness and drying, and you're gonna see your outer layers of that pack really get super, super dry, get into some case hardening, and crack apart on you, turn into kindling real fast. So I actually would recommend you keep it outside. Um, you're not going to get the additional heating of being in that attic, that convective environment up above your garage. It's going to be outside. It's going to be more open to the, um, the elements. But because it is a desert climate, you don't really have to worry too much about a lot of excess moisture. You do want to cover it, but I don't necessarily mean cover it with a tarp. Just put something over the top of it, like some corrugated um, vinyl siding or something like that, just to keep standing water from falling on it. A lot of times, if you look traditionally, Additionally, um, lumber was stacked with the wider boards on top and the narrower boards in the bottoms. So you get this inverted pyramid look. And what that means is those wider boards on top act as a shelter for the narrower boards underneath. You can do the same thing with the core graded um, steel or vinyl siding just by putting a wider piece of that on top that acts as kind of eaves over the stack of lumber. There's no reason to necessarily have a tarp over it because that's going to prevent airflow as well. But if you've stickered it and you've put it out in the elements, you just get natural airflow of just the you know the wind and the air moving through things put in the attic and you're you're cutting off your lumber from that natural airflow and you've got to run some kind of fan through there all the time now that may be possible and it will certainly dry faster in that warmer convective environment you just absolutely it's so much more important that you have airflow there or you're going to ruin that lumber so i just think the safer bet is to put it outside and let nature do the job um, just you know keep the standing water off of it and check it keep checking it and if necessary rotate that stock uh, unstack it and restack it with the stuff in the middle on the outside kind of like you're uh, rotating your tires on your car or something like that uh, next nick wrote in and he says does felling a log at a certain time of year make any difference? I have a friend with a sawmill and generally look for smallish fruit trees, arbutus, or other interesting wood. And I have an opportunity for two small weeping willows, but I'm not sure what they'll look like um, if I drop them here in March. I'm in the Pacific Northwest on the coast, and it's about 10 degrees above freezing. Um, short answer to this is absolutely it makes a difference what time of year you fell. Traditionally, you do not want to fell trees in the spring. Because what's happening in the spring? The growth season has started again. So the sap is rising from the ground and, and feeding all those little offshoots, all the growth of leaves, all the, you know, the new, the, the buds and everything you see on the tree, that's providing, a, uh, that's requiring a great deal of nutrient, a great deal of water, a great deal of, of, of food from the soil. So the cambium layers, the xylem layer, all that, the sap is flowing and rising up and providing all those nutrients. So if you fell that tree now, 
it is going to be a lovely buffet for the bugs because it's going to be nice and sticky sweet filled with sap and sugar and the bugs are going to go nuts for it. But also, even if the bugs leave it alone, that food in the sapwood layer is, is a recipe for rot. It also can cause color changes in certain species. One, probably the most common species is holly. If holly is felled in the summer, it will not be white. Moreover, holly is actually so um, particular about this that you actually have to saw it into boards from a log really quickly and get it dry really quickly or you'll start to get a lot of staining. And mineral staining can be very common, especially in the lighter colored woods where it's more obvious because all that stuff that's rising up, all the, the nutrients has also a fair amount of stuff from the dirt. So silica and different minerals and things. And, and if you're in iron rich soil, you're going to have a lot of ferrous material that can cause staining. And if it's a tannin rich wood, you're going to see major problems. A lot of issues coming up with that um, uh, sap heavy sapwood. So you could fell the tree and immediately chop away the sapwood, but you know, you're also going to have stuff moving through the medullary rays that could cause issues as well. So in general, you want to fell your trees before the sap starts rising. So Nick, if you're felling them in March while it's, you know, 10 degrees above freezing, you're okay. But in a week, it might not be okay. So really, it doesn't mean that you can't use lumber that was felled in the summer and the in the spring. Um, it's just something you got to be particularly cautious about because of all that extra nutrient in the wood that can cause all kinds of stuff. Now, you could get some really cool effects. You could get some really cool mineral staining or some spalting and things that could happen from that particularly rot prone wood with all of the sugars and you know extractives and things like that flowing through it. Just uh, food for thought. Uh, so Daniel said, when I buy rough cut lumber, I often find boards with green and yellow circles on them. Sometimes it's obviously around a knot, but otherwise it just seems random. Is this something I should be aware of when buying a board? I assume these are for grading the board. So yes, Daniel, they are absolutely for grading the board. They're are some accepted shorthands for grade marks that you find on boards. If you are an NHLA certified grader, you often have been taught uh, a vocabulary of grading marks, but they also can be somewhat personal and, and vary from grader to grader and from company to company. But certainly, you know, yeah, if you see a knot has been circled, that's just calling out there is a defect because as the lumber is being graded, you're trying to find those defects. Once you've identified all the defects, then you have to look at what's left in order to see if it meets the grade. Is it 83.3% clear? Can I get this minimum cutting size out of it? If yes, then it's an FAS board. So those, those circles around the knots are calling out those defects. If you see a circle that's not obviously around a knot, you might want to look closer and you may find that there actually is a defect there. Maybe there's a bird peck. Maybe there's a little bit of shake or flip the board over. You might find that there is a defect on the opposite face. And the grader is recognizing that that defect with some planing will probably telegraph through to the other side. Or you can look at the grain and see that it's kind of swirling and bunching around what isn't a knot, but is obviously a knot on the opposite face. There's a lot more defects than just knots. And the other thing you may find, especially if it's more of, a, of an amorphous mark, it's not necessarily a circle highlighting one particular area, but you'll see random slashes or sometimes like a letter. Um, sometimes you'll see numbers, you know, you'll see an 80 or a 90 um, marked down there where that's referring to the percentage of heartwood that's in the board. 
over, you know, versus sapwood. Um, sometimes those marks are just calling out because the grader was grading for a specific spec. If they had graded and, you know, everything had been determined, okay, these are all FAS boards, so they're all number one common boards, it doesn't really matter. And then they bring them back for grading again, because now you have an order and the customer has a specific length and width spec that needs to be met, or a specific heartwood sapwood spec that needs to be met. Because remember, sapwood, according to NHLA, is not a defect. So a lot of times boards are graded multiple times, not just grading for defects, but then grading for a customer specification for a particular order. So sometimes what happens is, say the grader has a specific width and length spec, he's measuring every board and throwing a slash mark on the boards that either don't meet that grade or meet the grade. Sometimes it's one slash mark, sometimes it's two slash marks if it meets the grade, etc. So you may find all kinds of random boards that could mean something to the grader, could mean something in that particular time. If it's not obviously pointing out a defect, it's more than likely saying this passes muster for you know, some unknown spec that isn't necessarily an NHL grade, but something that a customer was looking for. So it can be kind of interesting when you see those marks to do play a little detective work and see if you can figure out what exactly were they grading for. But just because you don't see a defect right away doesn't mean there isn't one there. Best thing I can say is flip it over and look on the opposite face. So next is uh, an email from Tom. He says, I've got a question about Spanish cedar. Is this material sourced and, quote, easy to find? Or am I just buying African mahogany either way? So, Tom, the, the thing about Spanish cedar is it is a CITES Appendix 2 listed species. Now, this is has been extended, I should say, to all Spanish cedars. Originally, it was Appendix 2 and CITES for the genuine Spanish cedar that came from South America. And there were some substantial plantations in Africa growing Spanish cedar, and those were still okay. Well, the demand shifted from the genuine stuff in South America to the African stuff, and now the African stuff has become Appendix 2 listed as well. Basically, any of the Cedrella odoratas um, are now on... Um, Appendix 2, Cites. Cedrella odorata is the, the Latin botanical for Spanish cedar. Useless uh, cocktail fact of the day. So, yes, it is um, easy. Well, easy is a relative term. It can be found because there's still a fair amount of demand for it, but it's quite a bit more expensive than it used to be. And oftentimes the available widths and lengths are quite small because the majority of the stock now is coming from those plantation trees in Africa. And just in general, plantation trees don't have the same length and width that, that comes from the old growth trees. So the grades have been kind of dumbed down. The bar has been lowered a little bit for Spanish cedar. And oftentimes you'll find it in already prepared stock that's been S4S down to a specific thickness because people who are absolutely demanding Spanish cedar, the largest market there are the humidor makers. And we're not just talking about the little boxes that you make as a gift for grandpa. We're talking about the full-size walk-in humidors. You know, the, the cigar uh, stores that actually sell cigars have ginormous humidors. The rich and famous have ginormous humidors. There is a market very much out there for these things and essentially the product they're buying is paneling and siding the other thing that gets used a lot for spanish cedar is spanish cedar plywood the good quality logs are not being sold for lumber it's being sold to the veneer companies and those logs are being peeled for maximum yield to make spanish cedar plywood which is a viable alternative to those large humidor makers so it can certainly be found 
one thing you have to ask yourself is, do I really need it? You know, if you're building a humidor, most definitely that is the common um, cedar, the, the common material that's used. But there are other um, species out there. Aromatic cedar will do just a fine job. There are several other um, Spanish cedar alternatives. If you Google Spanish cedar alternatives, you'll find uh, several different options from South America and Africa that can do the same thing. Now, the question is, once you start getting an alternative kind of secondary and tertiary species, finding them becomes a lot more difficult because if there's not a real big market for that, it's not worth anybody's time and money to import that material. Um, what you'll find is a lot of that material is being sold in wherever it was harvested. It's being sold in Africa and used locally in Africa or being transported up to Europe um, at best case. So it certainly can be found. Um, there's plenty of other alternatives to African mahogany as well. It doesn't have to be Spanish cedar or just African mahogany. But, you know, um, it's all a matter of why do I need that particular species and um, making a couple of phone calls to find out who has it and what kind of availability they have in it. A lot of times there's some strong seasonality to that particular species and you're just not going to find it in the winter months and you're not going to find it in the spring. It's generally only available in the summer because it's imported all at one time. And what happens is it's developed. Containers are developed over time, over six, eight months. Once that container is filled, then it's shipped. Um, and generally, once it's filled, people wait for the uh, advantageous exchange rate and then ship it all at once when the exchange rate is favorable. So, you know, it's, it's famine, 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 suddenly feast. You know, there's 10 containers that enter a port and suddenly there's a whole bunch of Spanish cedar and it can go very quickly. I can't say that that's so much different from a lot of other species, but Spanish cedar, because it does have such a hyper-specific application, you will find that it's kind of a little club. And your best bet is to start, if you're looking at it for a humidor purpose, start looking at humidor cigar aficionado type websites and forums and finding out the manufacturers who make these things. And just like I talked about several episodes ago about alternate ways to source your lumber, you know, it's not always just going to a lumber yard. Find someone who makes humidors and reach out to them and say, look, you know, I'm a small guy. I'm looking for this amount. They may have offcuts. They may have material left or they may, you may be able to reserve something in their next ship. Um, that may be probably is going to be your better alternative for finding Spanish cedar than going to a traditional lumber yard because the people who actually rely on the product for or rely on the species for their product, they are oftentimes importing it directly or they've got a buying program with an importer of record. So that material comes in, doesn't even stop in the, at the yard and it goes straight to their manufacturing. Hope that helps, Tom. Um, and I think... I think that's all I've got for this week, guys. I've got a bunch of other questions, but I think we'll we'll uh, call it quits for this episode for now because uh, we've covered a wide variety. So again, if you have questions, please email them to me. Go to lumberupdate.com. Go to the contact form, the ask a question, whatever I call that button. You can fill out uh, the uh, form there and submit your question or just email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Love to hear your questions. I've got some great ones still in the, uh, in the hopper, but I can always use more. And again, if you want to support the show, please go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash lumberupdate and uh, become a sponsor of the show. You can also find me at Lumber Update on Instagram. I generally will let people know when new episodes come up, and I try to post some things going on around the lumberyard there as well. So thanks for listening, everybody, and 
go buy some lumber. 